but we go forward as unto the Lord uh, in spite of the challenges around us. And lots happened this week. It was a bit of a wild week for us just getting back from camp uh, from last week. We weren't there for the COVID scare, but uh, getting back from that and settling back in and then uh, all that's happened this week, it's been quite a week. But we're here in a great passage in the Word of God in Acts chapter 7. I do want to remind us that we are continuing a series in the book of Acts. So this is not just a random message that we're pulling out of Acts chapter 7, but of course we're continuing a series that we've been doing uh, uh, starting several weeks ago with Acts chapter 1. And last week, of course, we considered Acts chapter 6. So uh, there's lots to say, but before we do that, let's read it. It's a lengthy passage But uh, let's read it together, and I'll give you a simple outline just before we start reading, Um, and this may help as just as we go along, what what exactly are we going to see or what are we looking at? And this is a very simple, high-level outline, but we're going to start in the middle of chapter 6 because it flows right into chapter 7. It's hard to break in uh, on chapter 7, verse 1, because it starts with a question from the high priest saying, are these things so? Well... You're going to ask, what things? And so we've got to go back to chapter 6, at least a few verses, to figure out what we're dealing with here. So, simple, high-level outline. Chapter 6, verse 8, to chapter 7, verse 1, Stephen is seized and summoned. Stephen seized and summoned. Again, very simple outline. Chapter 7, verse uh, 2 Through verse 53, Stephen speaks, and there's lots that he says, but the bottom line is that Stephen is speaking. He's preaching, you could say, in chapter 7, verse 2 to verse 53. And then chapter 7, verse 54 to 60, as many of us, I'm sure, are aware, Stephen is stoned, stoned. So Stephen is seized and summoned, chapter 6, 8 to 7, 1, Stephen speaks, Chapter 7, verse 2 to 53, and then Stephen is stoned. That's basically what we're going to see, although there's a lot there to consider. So let's read it together. Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. We're introduced to this man, Stephen. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom in the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face, looking steadfastly at him, excuse me, saw his face as the face of an angel. I couldn't help but think of this as we looked at Luke uh, and uh, the cross-reference to Matthew as well, the, the radiant face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here we have a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ filled with the Spirit, and his face was radiant as the face of an angel. What a picture. And so Stephen's been seized, and then chapter 7 and verse 1 He summoned, you could say, the high priest said, are these things so? And he said, now this is Stephen speaking. And he said, Stephen said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, 
not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles. Amen. And gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. Now, I'm just going to break here for a moment. Hopefully you can catch the flow here. Stephen started with Abraham, and he's just going to kind of lay out a panoramic view of the Old Testament. Okay, so hopefully we're following along with that. That's essentially what Stephen's doing with good purpose, and we'll get to that. Uh, verse 12, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father, Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man, this is the new Pharaoh, dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they may not live. Again, hopefully your mind is kind of running along, right? We started in Genesis, Exodus, and so forth. So uh, we're at the beginning of Exodus now, so to speak, in history. At this time, verse 20 of Acts 7, Moses was born and well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe the voice of the Lord, as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord God, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. 
This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. And as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Repham. Images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling of, for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. However, the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? Says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? And listen to this as Stephen kind of turns the tone quite a bit. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Wow. What a stinging rebuke. When they, this is the listeners, the scribes and elders and so forth, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. They gritted their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. That's where we started this morning, gazing on the Lord of glory gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you as we've come this morning to look into your holy word. It is living and powerful. What an incredible story that you have recorded for us. Not just a story, but history. And we thank you for this. Help us, our Father, we pray, as we look into your word, to to understand it, uh, to rightly divide it, and to apply it to our lives. There is so much, O God, we know in your word for us. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the type of story that speaks for itself, right? We take time. I know that's a lot of verses, but take time to read the scriptures. It could be easy for a preacher on a day like this because I could almost just read the text, give a comment or two and close the meeting as long as the text is and as well as the text speaks for itself. It's not difficult to follow, right? Stephen is seized. He's charged. He's, he's charged with blasphemy and so forth. He's summoned, basically, Stephen, what do you think about this? These charges that are put before you. Stephen speaks. They don't like what they hear. And then Stephen's stoned. That's the summation of the story. It reminds us of someone else, doesn't it? Does it remind you of the Lord Jesus? 
I mean, we could go through. We won't at the moment. Maybe we'll get to it. But wow, what a picture. What a, what a person reminding us of the Lord Jesus himself. Now, before we get into the text uh, in detail, I've been very burdened by this. You could certainly say that the main character of this story is whom? Stephen, right? We could rightly say that. The main character is Stephen. I've already told you Stephen seized, Stephen speaks, and Stephen is stoned. He's the main character of the story. You wouldn't be wrong in saying that. But I want us to be fully aware and I trust fully persuaded that if it weren't for the Spirit of God, Stephen would not be Stephen. And so in that sense, although Stephen is the main character, really there's a sense in which the main character of the story is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Stephen is not Stephen apart from the Spirit of God. We're going to look at, by God's grace, because there's lots here, Stephen, what an example as a person. That is really chapter 6. Stephen, what an example as a preacher. That's primarily Acts chapter 7. Stephen, what an example in persecution. That's the end of Acts chapter 7. This is what we're seeing. But why? Why is Stephen such an example as a person? One who's filled with wisdom and faith and power. Why? Why is Stephen such an example as a preacher? Not just a person, but as a preacher. As he lays out the Old Testament history in a stinging, not only uh, 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 an incredible defense, but in a stinging uh, uh, accusation, offense against them. Why is Stephen such a person? Why is Stephen such a preacher? How does Stephen respond in such a way under persecution? It's because of the Spirit of God, because of the Holy Spirit. So yes, Stephen is the main character, but we would do ourselves I am fully convicted and persuaded, a massive injustice. If we just look at Stephen and say, well, look at him, let's try to be like him. Okay, that's good. We want to do that. We want to, I want to be a person like Stephen. I want to be a preacher like Stephen. I want to deal with persecution like Stephen did. But if we approach the passage just to say, look at what Stephen did, I want to try to be like him. I think I could mimic him. Lord, I'm going to try harder, not recognizing that Stephen was Stephen because of the Spirit of God. We would do ourselves a massive injustice. I'm fully persuaded and convicted. In fact, the book as a whole, Jamel reminded us right at the very beginning in Acts chapter 1 that some would like to call this the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Well, we, it's the Acts of the Apostles, and I'm not getting into that whole thing. But just to say that the Spirit of God, is ab- He is absolutely pivotal throughout the book of Acts. So let's just remind ourselves of this, because this is critical. Acts chapter 1 In verse 2, let's just read verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles. Uh, Verse 7, And he, the Lord Jesus, said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. From the very outset of the book, the person and work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely critical. If there is no Spirit of God, no Holy Spirit, there is no book of Acts in that sense. The book falls apart because we have a people, yes, a people of God, yes, a people who preached and who prayed and who had power, but all of it was founded in the Spirit of God. It was Spirit-filled preaching. It was spirit-led prayer. It was spirit-charged acts of power, like raising people up and all that they did. That was because of the Holy Spirit. 
as we come to Acts 6 and 7, we would ask ourselves, well, do these fit the same theme? Is the Holy Spirit still prominent in Acts 6 and Acts 7 as we're introduced to Stephen? Well, the answer is emphatically yes. Stephen, one who Acts 6 and verse 5 says, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. At the very end of his preaching, verse 55 of Acts 7, but he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit. So what I want to emphasize this morning is that, yes, it's Stephen, but but it's beyond Stephen. It's the Spirit of God. And though we will look at an example that I trust each of us will say, I want to follow that example. This man followed the Lord Jesus Christ literally in his his appearance, his preaching, his stoning, his persecution, all of it mirrored the Lord Jesus. I want to follow that example. I trust you do too. Don't miss the fact that you can only do it by the Spirit of God. Like Paul would say to the Galatians in Galatians 3, verse 3, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Meaning that it was the Spirit of God by faith in Christ that gave us salvation at the very beginning. And it will be the Spirit of God by faith that we, by faith in the Lord, in the Spirit of God, will continue in sanctification. We'll live out a life like the life of Stephen. So Acts chapter 1 through verse 6, there's much prayer ascending. There are apostles preaching Christ boldly. There are miraculous displays of power. We see praises ascending to heaven. Because of all of that, persecution has come upon the church. But the church perseveres through the leading of the Spirit of God, through the power of the Spirit of God. Acts, a book of people that are Spirit-filled, Spirit-charged, Spirit-guided, Spirit-sensitive, Spirit-led. So if I were to give a title to the sermon today, it would be something like this, at least, Surrender to the Spirit. Surrender to the Spirit. To the Spirit. This is the main point that the Lord has given to me to drive home the Spirit of God. Our need for the indwelling, our need for the filling of the Holy Spirit. You notice that in the first portion of the book, as external opposition comes upon the people of God, they persevere through the Spirit of God. When we come to Acts chapter 5, Malcolm reminded us or went through this story with us. And here we have not so much external opposition, but internal deception is what we have in Acts chapter 5. But what's what are the key words? Peter would say in Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter would say to Sapphira in verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? They persevered in the face of external opposition through the emboldening power of the Spirit of God. Peter would deal with internal deception by and through the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 6, Brian very adequately supplied us with excellent thoughts about now internal conflict in Acts chapter 6. How would this be dealt with? Well, seek out, Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 6 and verse 3. How would internal conflict be dealt with? By spirit-filled individuals led by, empowered by, emboldened by the Spirit of God. 
So while the story is about Stephen, it's deeper than that. It's the spirit of God. Stephen is not Stephen apart from the Holy Spirit. I have a question for you. Is the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, as important to us as clearly it was to them, at least up to where we've gotten in Acts chapter 6? I hope we say yes. We need the Lord. We need the Spirit of God. We need to be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is referenced more than 60 times in 28 chapters in the book of Acts. More than 15 times in the first five chapters of the book of Acts. And the Holy Spirit is just as important to us now as it was to them then. He is absolutely necessary to our Christian life. Uh, I was reminded of a story that helps us a little bit with this. And it's a kind of a silly story, but it goes something like this. There was a young man uh, in high school, and uh, this young man in high school, well, you could say was not much of a ladies' man, okay? So uh, young, maybe premature to develop. I don't know what the situation was, but not much of a ladies' man. But he was intelligent, very smart. And one day in chemistry class, his teacher let him know that one of the young ladies was struggling badly. And she said, you know, we'll call him Henry. Henry, I want you to tutor this young lady. Well, I think I could do that, he would say. So he would sit down with this lovely young lady and begin to tutor her through her chemistry class. One day, he got the brilliant idea that uh, he would make this incredible cheat sheet checklist. Everything you need to know about chemistry in one list. And so he begins to write. And he's thinking, this is going to be incredibly helpful to her. And he's got it all written out. And he's got, and as he gets to the end of it, and he thinks about handing this off to her, he realizes something. If I give this lovely young lady this checklist cheat sheet I've created, she will no longer have need of me. And as we think about our Christian life, the Lord has made it such that the solution to our problems is not separated from he himself. People, we need the Lord. We need the spirit of God. If we're not surrendering to the spirit of God, in that sense, the solution, the secret solution to our problems is the spirit of God. But not so secret, of course, because the the word of God makes it manifestly evident. So God has not separated the solution from himself. Hence, he's given you the spirit of God. But like the Galatians, sometimes we can just start paddling in the flesh. No active surrender to the Lord. No saturation in the sword of the spirit. But somehow we think we're going to carry out. We're going to live a life like Stephen in the flesh, apart from the spirit of God. God has not separated the solution from himself. I want to think for just a minute. I, I'm, I can't help it, but if. Being filled with the Spirit of God is as important as it appears to be in the book of Acts, at least up to the point that we've gotten. And if indeed it is that important to you and I in our Christian life, we ought to think about it a little bit. So I'm going to go a little bit outside of the book of Acts for a minute to think about the Spirit of God and specifically being filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? I want you to think about that. If someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? Maybe even a better or at least a more challenging question, how can you be filled with the Spirit of God? We should know, right? I mean, we should have some idea if it's that important to them and it is that important to us. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? How can we Christians be filled with With the Spirit of God. I want to observe a little bit from Acts chapter 1. Just think about for a moment. Acts chapter 2 is when the Spirit of God is given. Understandably, this is the baptism of the Spirit. 
But notice that Acts chapter 2, verse 4, they were not just baptized, and I, I, maybe this is getting too theological, but not just baptized, but Acts chapter 2, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of the Spirit, yes, but they were filled, and it affected everything about them. Incredible effect that the, the indwelling Spirit of God, they had been following Christ as disciples and apostles, the Lord Jesus has now ascended, but now Christ dwells in them. The Spirit of God has come. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 4. What preceded the filling? Now, I'm not trying to build a massive, um, a massive checklist, so to speak. Uh, this is not a formula, so to speak. I am not aware of a formula for the filling of the Spirit. But I do believe there are principles in the word of God and there and that we have a part to play in the filling of the spirit of God. Are you cooperating with the spirit of God? We're going to find that these men that Stephen spoke to, they resisted the spirit of God. You do always resist the Holy Spirit, Stephen would say. Are you cooperating with the spirit of God? So while this is not a formula, and I'm not claiming it to be a formula, it is helpful to understand and observe if we're wondering, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God, and how do I become filled with the Spirit of God? Notice that in Acts chapter 1, what we have is a group of men who had, first of all, and we get this from the Gospels, surrendered all. For the Lord, they had left their livelihood. They had put behind them what they knew of life for the Lord Jesus Christ. So just to sum, sum it, essentially what we find in the Gospels, these men had given up everything. Their life was in total surrender to the Lord. So if we're getting or wanting to get to the point of knowing how do we become filled with the Spirit? Well, these men in Acts chapter 1 before they're filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, have surrendered all to the Lord. Have you surrendered all? Have you come? Are you coming to the Lord daily? Lord, I am not my own. I am yours. Lord, my home is not mine. It's yours. Lord, my job, yes, you've given it to me. I need to provide for the basic needs of life. But this is your job, essentially, Lord. All to Jesus, right? I surrender. They had surrendered all. They were also continuing, according to Acts 1.14, with one accord in prayer. So, again, I'm not building a formula, but just observing. Before they're filled with the Spirit, they surrendered all. They were continuing in prayer. Acts 1, 15 through, say, verse 20, they're looking to the Scriptures as Peter lays out to them several things from the Old Testament scriptures, they're fully dependent upon the Lord. They're just sitting and waiting upon the Lord. Full dependence upon the Lord. And then in Acts chapter 2, we find them filled with the Holy Spirit, permeated by the Spirit, empowered and emboldened by the Spirit of God. Men who had been sitting, no doubt afraid, cooped up in that upper room, now filled with the Spirit of God, and it totally changed who they were. Totally changed, in that sense, their character. They were no longer like themselves, but more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. This is part of what it is to be filled with the Spirit of God. They had surrendered. They were in prayer. They were looking to the Scriptures. They were totally dependent upon the Lord. It is interesting that in Acts chapter 2, they, some looking in would say this in Acts 2.13, mocking, they said, they are full of new wine. Some thought they were drunk, these men who were filled with the Spirit of God. It's interesting because Paul will use that contrast in Ephesians 5. Let's go to Ephesians 5 for just a minute. We're just establishing right now I trust we have established the importance of the Spirit of God in the beginning of the book of Acts, at least, because that's what we've covered. And we're going to find that the Spirit of God is 
prominent throughout the book of Acts. The filling of the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 4, Peter was filled with the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 4, I think verse 32 or went for 32, when they prayed, they were filled with the Spirit of God. So we know it's important. We know this is important. We believe it's not only for them, but it's for us. But what does it mean and how do we do it? Paul would say in Ephesians 5 verse 18, this, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I just want to suggest to you that, and lots would agree, this is not new stuff, I know that many of you are aware of this, but to be filled with the Spirit, what does it mean? It means to be permeated, controlled, and even dominated by the Spirit of God. Permeated, controlled, and even dominated by the Spirit of God. Well, how do we know that? Well, when we break down the verb be filled, we find four, at least four very important things. Number one, it's an imperative. It's a weighty command. Be filled with the spirit. I wonder how well we process that. If I'm not walking in the spirit, if I'm not functioning as a Christian, Filled with the Spirit of God, do I recognize it as a breaking of a New Testament command? Be filled with the Spirit of God. As one preacher said, we'd be shocked with a drunk preacher or even a drunk parishioner. But how shocked are we when we walk soberly but not spiritually? Like if I were up here drunk today or I observed in the audience, this man is fallout drunk. We'd probably go to the elders and say, hey, something's got to be done about this. This is wrong. And it would be wrong. It's an awful thing, drunkenness is. But the the negative command is accompanied with the positive command. Be filled with the Spirit. I wonder how many of us, though walking soberly, are not walking spiritually. Not filled with the Spirit. Um, There's lots more that we could say about that. One would say, you and I must never be satisfied that we are a dry church. I'm not minimizing the devastation of drunkenness. Drunkenness is a real danger and very destructive. And it is simple disobedience to the word of God. But we've got to be as exercised about our spirituality as we are about our sobriety. It is a command. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is plural. It is to all, not just some. I hope you recognize today that the filling of the Spirit of God was not just for the apostles because they were special followers, that walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit of God was not just for the elite, not just for the, uh, as some would like to say, the religious clergymen. No, but it's for everyone. And when Paul lays out this command, he's going to then tie it to very practical applications to husbands. We have any husbands here today? To wives? We have any wives here today? To children? We have some children here today to workers. Do we have any workers here today? Why? I think that covers pretty much all of us. It is a net that encompasses everyone. We are all to be filled with the spirit. It's plural to all. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's passive. That means that it's something that somebody does to us. This is a work of the spirit of God in us. We cannot manufacture it with our own flesh. It's what the Lord does to us. And it's also present tense, ongoing. As many have observed, be filled with the Spirit is not a one-time event, but an ongoing event. Be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit are momentary and permanent. But this here is continuous and conditional. So be filled with the Spirit. All right. Being filled with the Spirit to be controlled, permeated, to be dominated by the Spirit of God. How do we obtain that? What's our part to play? If the Lord does the work in us, which He does, if it's the Spirit of God upon us, which it is the Spirit of God upon us, what's our part to play? I want to give you just three uh, basic things regarding being filled with the Spirit. Number one, as we take 
three main passages, uh, Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and Colossians chapter 3. And I look at them all together. They're parallel passages. Three things from those passages. Number one, if we want to be filled with the Spirit of God, we need to, number one, expose and eradicate sin. We cannot live a life filled with sin, filled with darkness, filled with wickedness, and be filled with the Spirit. It's simply impossible. One thing that drunk men don't do, or women, drunk people don't do very well, is eat. Oftentimes, they don't like to fill their belly because when their belly's filled with food, it can't be filled with alcohol. It's an awful thing. I know, I'm not making light of it. It's very sad. But we as children of God, in that sense, need to be emptied. Ephesians 5, he would say, It is shameful even to speak of those things which are done in secret, but all, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. Verse 11, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. If you want to be filled with the Spirit of God, you need to expose sin. You cannot have hidden sin in there that's not being exposed to the Lord. And if it needs to be to expose to one another, expose sin. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. So uh, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, mortify the flesh. Put sin to death. Some would say, put sin to death or it'll put you to death. Deal seriously with sin. Expose it to the light. Cut it off. Put it off, it would say in Ephesians 4. Expose and eradicate sin. Number two, engage in the work of the Spirit of God. So we're exposing sin. We want to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be exposing sin. We need to be engaged in the work of the Spirit and engaging in the Spirit's word. Colossians 3, the parallel passage in verse 16, would say it's essentially word for word the same, except instead of saying, be filled with the Spirit, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If you want to be filled with the Spirit of God, you need to engage in the work of the Spirit of God. You need to engage in the Spirit's Word, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Engage in the work of the Spirit. Surrender to Him. As the Lord brings things to your mind, to your heart, understanding, confess it to Him. Surrender it to Him. Engage in the work. Don't resist the work of the Spirit of God. Don't rebel against the work of the Spirit of God, but engage in the work of the Spirit of God. And lastly, and again, this is not a formula, but just principles, entreat the Lord by faith. Ask the Lord. The Lord Jesus would say in Luke eleven thirteen, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So ask the Lord. Entreat the Lord. How do you know when you're not filled with the Spirit of God? Well, the scripture has given us evidences of being filled with the Spirit. I suppose probably many of you know what those evidences are. Galatians 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So you can examine your own life and heart. And to some degree, we can look at one another, no doubt. But thinking of ourselves... Am I filled with the Spirit of God? Am I walking in the Spirit, as Galatians 5 says? Am I being led by the Spirit, as Ephesians, uh, Galatians 5 says? Look at the, look at the evidence. What, the, the fruit of the Spirit is my life characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. If it's not, then what you're doing is not led by the Spirit of God, but it's the works of the flesh. This is the contrast that Galatians 5 gives. We don't want to be Christians that are walking according to the flesh, but Christians who are filled with the Spirit. One last thing on that. John MacArthur says in his commentary that the Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit can be compared to a glove. 
Until it is filled by a hand, the glove is powerless and useless. It is designed to do work, but it can do no work by itself. It works only as the hand controls and uses it. The glove's only work is the hand's work. It does not ask the hand to give it an assignment and then try to complete the assignment without the hand. Nor does it gloat or brag about what it used to do because it knows the hand deserves all the credit. A Christian can accomplish no more without being filled with the Holy Spirit than a glove can accomplish without being filled with the hand. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Stephen was. The early apostles were. People that were led by, filled with, empowered by, emboldened by. What does it look like? I mean, look at their lives. Boldly preaching the word of God. Suffering for the name of Christ and counting it joy. These are evidences of those filled with the Spirit. So, I know that that was a lot, but that's part, the large part of my burden from the Lord. Spirit-filled Stephen. Are you Spirit-filled? I want to be like Stephen. You better get the Spirit. Because Stephen was not Stephen apart from the Spirit of God. You better be surrendering to the Spirit You better be saturating yourself in the Spirit of God. This is the sword of the Spirit. Otherwise, you'll never be filled with the Spirit. You'll never look like Stephen, who looked like the Lord Jesus. I want to be like him. I need the Spirit of God. Surrender to the Spirit. Spirit Spirit-filled Stephen. We have, you could say, three characters in Acts 7. Spirit-filled Stephen. The stiff-necked scribes and elders... And then our standing Savior. Spirit-filled Stephen. What an example as a person. What an example as a preacher. Acts chapter 7. Let's think a little bit about the preaching of Stephen. He's accused on four accounts in Acts chapter 6. They would accuse him of blaspheming Moses. Blaspheming God. Blaspheming the temple. And being contrary to or or opposed to the law. And maybe I shouldn't have said blaspheming, but they've, they call him blasphemous words against the holy place and against the law. These are, their, these are their accusations. Moses, God, the temple, the law, this man, Stephen, speaks against them. Well, Stephen will go through, as we've read in Acts chapter 7, and address all of these. He lays out to them the very God that they claim to worship. The God of glory, he would say in Acts chapter 7 and verse 2, appeared to our father. These were Jewish brethren. He identifies right away, I am not blaspheming God. The God that I'm representing is the God that you claim to be following. The God of Abraham, our father. And so he'll lay out to them a response to all of these accusations. If you want to observe it, there's no possible way that we could go through all of it in the span of time, but Acts 7, verse 2 to 19, really the emphasis is on God. Remember, they accused him of blaspheming God. Acts 7, 20 to 41, the emphasis is on Moses. Moses. Remember, they, they accused him of speaking blasphemous words against Moses. Acts chapter 7, verse 44 to 50, specifically addresses the temple. That was accusation number 3. And then Acts chapter 7, 51 to 53, a little piece on the law. And of course, there's some intermingling there. I'm not saying it's absolutely hard, fast laid out that way, but he does address all of their accusations. How would Stephen deal with the accusations of the scribes and elders, these Jewish leaders that accused him such? What would he do? Well, we already considered it. Stephen would bring the book, so to speak. Stephen would go back to the Old Testament and lay out to them an Old Testament history that did not accuse himself, but actually accused them. And we can see that. But I want to emphasize first this. Stephen, in his preaching, unashamedly laid hold of the Old Testament. I want to tell you something. In today's culture, in our Christian culture, and I'm saying Christianity at large, 
the Old Testament is absolutely under attack. Absolutely. There are lots of well-known Christian teachers that uh, uh, allegorize large parts of the Old Testament. Genesis, well, all of that Genesis stuff, especially the first 11 chapters, we don't really know what to make of that. That seems like one big bit of poetry, but it's not, it's history. And what we find from Stephen is that he unashamedly lays hold of the Old Testament, starting not all the way to Genesis 1, but to Genesis 12 and coming forward. But did you know that the Lord Jesus himself would testify to essentially all of the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus affirms in his life, listen, don't get lost with me. Some people claiming Christianity say that New Testament, I can handle that. couple thousand years uh, old. Uh, we've got lots of manuscripts. I'm, I'm good with that. Tells me about Jesus. I'm good with that. I can handle that. Let's stick to that. Don't worry about that Old Testament stuff. They do. Absolutely. And especially the Jonah. Come on. What about Jonah? You don't really believe that, do you? God creating the world in seven days? That's poetry. That's not literal. That's not history. And Noah and the flood. Come on. You don't believe that, do you? Animals on a boat? Well, the Lord Jesus believed it. So if you're going to say, yes, I, and granted, I'm thinking right now of those in Christendom that hold to large parts of the New Testament, but, but willingly deny the Old Testament, you've got to deal with this. The Lord Jesus, he affirmed the creation account. And Adam and Eve, Mark 10, Matthew 19. He affirmed Cain and Abel, Luke 11, 50 to 52. He affirmed Noah and the flood, Matthew 24, 37. He affirmed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as real historical figures. Of course, so did Stephen, Matthew 8, 11. The Ten Commandments. You don't believe in those Ten Commandments? Oh, well, talk about the Ten Commandments. That's old stuff. Let's talk about Jesus. The Lord Jesus affirmed the Ten Commandments, Luke 18, 20. He affirmed manna came from heaven. You believe that? Bread came from heaven? That's nonsense. The Lord Jesus believed it. John chapter 6. He affirmed King David, Mark 2, 25. He affirmed Solomon and the queen of Sheba, Matthew 12, 42. He affirmed Jonah. He affirmed Jonah. That silly story in the Old Testament, Matthew 12, 40. He spoke of Elijah, Elisha, Naaman, Lot's wife, Old Testament circumcision, manna, Sodom and Gomorrah. He quoted from Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, Hosea, Jonah, Zechariah, and Malachi. That's the Lord Jesus. So Stephen, what would Stephen do? Well, he had a Jewish audience, you might say. That is true. And I'm sure for good reason with the Jewish audience, he opened up the Old Testament. I don't even know if he had a scroll with him, by the way. It seems lots of this might have just been in his mind. As he went through, could you do that? Could I do that? Lay out the Old Testament, quoting various passages to show them I'm right on track with what the story presents. What an example as a preacher. What an example. What is the main point of Stephen's sermon? Well, let me say first this. Stephen wants them to see at least a few things. One of the things is that God has never been confined to the temple. I'm not blaspheming God, essentially is what Stephen's saying. God has never been confined to the temple. Acts 7 and verse 2, the God of glory appeared in the temple. No, appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was in the temple, but God was with him, it says. Verse 30. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And in the temple? No, but in a flame, a fire, in a bush, in the wilderness, and so forth and so on. Till he gets to the summation in Acts seven forty-four to 50. The Most High, verse 48, does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Don't confine the Lord to the temple. Part of his message. What is, you could say, the main part? What's the main point of Stephen's sermon? I don't, Stephen doesn't say, this is my sermon title like I did. He doesn't say, this is my main point like maybe I could do today. But he does say this in summary, Acts 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who told, foretold of the coming of the just one and so forth. Israel's history was a history of rejected deliverers. This is what I take as the main point of Stephen's sermon. Israel's history was a history of rejected deliverers. Remember, he highlights two main characters, right? Joseph and Moses. Joseph, was he rejected? Well, those patriarchs of old, he would say, we might revere them. But Stephen would say they became jealous. Get this young man out of here. A rejected deliverer. But God would use Joseph. God sovereignly working all the way through. God would use Joseph, wouldn't he, to deliver his people. Israel's history, a history of rejected deliverers. What about Moses? Well, we read the text, right? And, and Stephen aptly highlighted the fact that he was rejected by his own people, not once, but twice. Who made you a judge and a ruler over us? They would say to him, right? Get out of here. Moses thought they would understand. God sent me to deliver you. Get out of here. Who made you a judge and a ruler? You get the picture. Here now, Stephen is representing the rejected deliverer. The Lord Jesus himself. Moses rejected at the beginning. Moses, after he leads them out of the prom, out of the, out of Egypt. Remember what happened? The, 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 the fathers of Israel, it says in verse 39, would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. You see, they said, you're blaspheming Moses. And Stephen would say, actually, your fathers, you follow in the same steps as your fathers. You were the one that rejected Moses. You act like you revere him, but actually your fathers rejected him before the deliverance. And then they rejected him again after the deliverance. Make us gods to go before us, they would say. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. A history of rejected deliverers. Stephen is representing the deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would they see that they've got a history of rejecting God's deliverers? This was the main point of Stephen's sermon, I take it, especially because of his conclusion, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen, what an example as a person, what an example as a preacher, and what an example in persecution. We're going to really have to rush through this last few things. We read it. The text speaks for itself. Here is Stephen in the face of persecution. Full of the Holy Spirit. Eyes fixed on heaven. I see the glory of God. What about you in the face of persecution? Are your eyes fixed upon heaven? Are you looking unto Jesus? Hebrews 12, 2. The author and finisher of your faith. We sang this morning, gazing on the Lord in glory. What about in the face of persecution? Is the glory of God your main focus? Yeah, I may be under attack here, but, but I see the glory of God. My eyes are fixed on heaven. Whatever may become of me is not my biggest concern. My eyes are fixed upon heaven, the glory of God, the face of Jesus Christ. Look, I see the heavens opened. You talk about living on a higher plane. Listen, he's standing here, or maybe at this point, sitting, I don't know, been cast out. Around him are his persecutors ready to stone him. 
And he looks right over them. I, I, I don't, heavenly view, I don't even see these men. I look to heaven. Eyes fixed on the glory of God. Eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Gazing into heaven. What about you? What about me? Stephen would go so far. What an example in persecution. As they're stoning him, calling on the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Reminds me of someone else on the cross. Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. What an example in persecution. It does not get other than the Lord Jesus himself. It doesn't get any better than this. How am I to deal with persecution? The sufferings of life, the challenges of life, injustice, we all deal with it. We know it. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. You see, Stephen's sermon, it, it wasn't a preaching to win an argument. It was a true heartfelt attempt to win souls. This was his desire. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And he says this, and he falls asleep, the scripture says, in peace, eyes fixed on the glory of God. Not worried about my own glory, because oftentimes that's what we do, isn't it? I'm worried about my glory. Someone's coming and attacking me. Listen, it's hard for us to imagine because we don't live in a land pervaded by persecution, do we? Not yet. But it's, it seems to be coming. It would be foolish not to recognize that. We can see what's happening around us. This is hateful and that's hateful and that's hate speech and all the rest of it. It seems to be coming. But even if it's not upon you now, what about in your home? What about with your maybe adult children? You ever feel under persecution from them? I know I did it to my parents. Injustice. They're attacking me. What about from a spouse? I'm being attacked. How will I respond to this? Well, Stephen gives us an incredible example of fixing our gaze upon heaven. I see the glory of God, not my own glory. I'm looking to Jesus. I'm not looking within. And what the Spirit of God can do with a man who has his eyes fixed on heaven, filled with the Holy Spirit. What an example in persecution. Now, we're going to close with this. Spirit-filled Stephen, but we have other characters, don't we? The stiff-necked scribes and elders and the rest of them. What, I'm asking you as we close, what can you and I learn from these stiff-necked scribes? Maybe we say, and rightfully so, well, the world, that's the stiff-necked scribes, and they throw stones at me, and I keep my eyes on the Lord Jesus. Okay, good, no problem. But I'm afraid that oftentimes we look more like the stiff-necked scribes than we do like spirit-filled Stephen. That in our dealings with one another, in our dealings at home, in our dealings in the workplace, we're more like this. The Spirit of God brings conviction. They're cut to the heart. I want to do it, but I don't have time. Acts chapter 2, they're cut to the heart. What must we do, Peter? They repent. But not these men here. They resist. They rebel against the Spirit of God. Unlike the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 2. It's an incredible contrast. Look at it. Sometimes you and I can be just like these stiff-necked scribes. Not spirit-filled like Stephen, not emanating the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, but instead, anger. Is this evident in your life? Is this what you see? Examine yourself. A, a life of anger at home, in the workplace. They gnashed at him with their teeth. They gritted their teeth. They were filled with rage. I've done it myself. I've been home and I just can hardly stand it. I can barely bear this anymore. The persecution I'm under, not from the world, but from people close to me or whatever the case is. We all deal with these things, don't we? The stiff-necked scribes resisting the Spirit of God. Anger. Shouting. I don't want to get too practical, but this is them. I'm shouting right now. I should stop. They're shouting. 
That's what it says in verse 5. They cried out with a loud voice. What about you in your home? Is it filled with loud voices? In a bad way, I've got lots of loud voices at home. But usually it's joyful, loud voices. But shouting, is that what marks you? This is the stiff-necked scribes. They covered their ears. What about you? Do you listen to the Spirit of God? Are you willing to listen to others when someone comes to you and says, Hey, this is off or that is off. And right away, I, oh, I won't listen to that. They don't know what I've put into this place and here they are criticizing me or whatever the case is. Covering their ears. Aggressing. They ran at him with one accord. Is that you marked by anger? In, in shut ears, in shouting, in aggression. I hope not. That's the works of the flesh, not the works of the Spirit of God. The stiff-necked scribes and elders, they resisted the Spirit of God. Oh, dear brother and sister, we have to close. Surrender to the Spirit. Surrender to His leading, His convicting. Oh, it hurts at times. We're going to be cut to the heart. But surrender to it. Acknowledge the wrong. Oftentimes, we look more like the stiff-necked scribes than we do like spirit-filled Stephen. There's tons more there. Seven, sixty-eight verses, I think, is in that passage. I trust that the Lord will help us as we think about these things. Walk in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. The sword of the... Surrender to the sword of the Spirit when you read it, brothers and sisters. Don't resist it. It's okay. Expose it. Confess it to the Lord when you need to. Confess it to one another. Expose it and saturate yourself in the sword of the Spirit that we might be filled with the Spirit and look like Spirit-filled Stephen, not like these stiff-necked scribes. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the blessing that it is to have Your Word to look into your scriptures and they do cut deep. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And these men in this day were cut by the word of God and they resisted. Oh God, help us, I pray, as we are cut by the word of God, by your spirit through the word of God. You do cut deep and we're grateful for that, Lord. Help us to surrender to the work of the spirit of God that we might live a life. We could follow the example of Stephen. Oh, Lord, help us, I pray. I want to be like spirit-filled Stephen. Fill me with your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.